Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Truma this morning. We are in Exodus 25. We are reading on a triennial cycle. So that means we are in the first third of every Torah portion. We're reading the first third of every portion so that we stay with the rest of the Jewish world by Parsha, but we're not going to read the whole thing. Next year we'll read the second third of every portion. So that means it's easy to find the place, right? And once I tell you the Parsha, we're at the first sentence. You need me from here on out to tell you where we're starting, but not not the first year of the cycle. Chapter 25, verse 1, we are at the uh, we are getting the commandment to build the Mishkan. We are getting the commandment to build the tabernacle. Uh, we, we are coming out of Revelation, which happened two weeks ago. Revelation with ten, ten Commandments. Then last week we had uh, a continuation of those laws articulated in what's called Sefer Habrit, the Book of the Covenant, Parshat Mishpatim. So those an ex- explication of law. And this week we are getting uh, the the physical manifestation of that among the Israelite people, which is the building of the Mishkan. So 25.1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the Israelite people to bring me gifts, and you shall accept gifts for me from every person whose heart so moves him. And these are the gifts that you shall accept from them. Gold, silver, and copper, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, fine linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, dolphin skins and acacia wood, oil for lighting, spaces for the anointing, spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense, lapis lazuli and other stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exactly as I show you the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, so shall you make it. Okay. God speaks to Moshe and says, Israel, speak to the people Israel, Truma. So the first thing that has to happen is that you will speak to the people Israel and take for me Truma. What is Truma? Gift. Alright, so the scholars point out, the rabbis point out that really the language here, the verb here should be what? Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to what? Me. Yes. Thank you, Laura. Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to give me <laughs> gifts. Mm-hmm. Interesting that the language is okay. take for me from the people gifts. All right. Y'all, y'all know the rabbis. <laughs> what do you think? Well, the next phrase is that uh, whose heart is so moved that you're, you're not required, is what he's saying. That's exactly right. There's a couple of qualities about this that that we're going to get told. And one is that they have to be Nadiv Lev. They have to be, it has to be of the heart. All right. So take for me, Truma. No, no scholarly brilliance here about. Accept it. So who needs to do the accepting? Um, I, I guess it's going to be Moshe. 
on behalf of, you know, on behalf of God. Aha. Uh-huh. You know, accept it when they bring it. So possibly one place to go with this is uh, that the people need to understand their gifts as having been accepted. Like often we give and then we turn around immediately and go into self-doubt. Did I did I give enough? Did I give it wholeheartedly enough? Was I did I do it appropriately? Right? So the people need to give and need to understand that it's been received. It's been taken in, taken and accepted. Right? Very nice. See? I knew we could get to a rabbinic interpretation in this room. The word truma in that word Truma is the root, is the shoresh. Resh mem he. Resh mem he means what? Rav. Rav means a lot. Rama? Yes, exactly. Lift it up. Why? Well, why, why, what does lift it up have to do with? Gifts they're going to give. Well, doesn't that give it honor? It ah. makes it so if so something is lifted it? up, it is given honor. Okay. And everyone and can see it. And right. Also, when you lift up your eyes, you're lifted up. You're opening up. So there's this sense of this is not just a, any gift then. It's a public display. It is a public display that's only going to be seen in its raw form. Hmm. Why? When it gets made into what the gifts are going to become, what happens? It's, it, it emerges as something else altogether. It emerges as something else altogether that the people never see. The people are not allowed inside the Mishkan. The pe- right? The, if you remember, the Mishkan's got the, you know, the, remember my amazing drawing abilities. Um, you know, the, the, there's the fence and then the Mishkan's in here, right? The altar's here, the laver's here. All of this stuff is going to be in here. The people are out here. So when they give it, they are giving it in its raw form, and that's the last they see of it. So there's a whole lot of trust there, isn't there? Because who's the only one who sees it? The priests. So the people need to trust that the priests are doing their job. They're not called Kohanim yet, are they? They, uh, they will be made Kohanim here. Okay. In, in a few of these parshiot, we get, I forget exactly where, but we get the, um, like next week it's the priestly garb, right? And they are called Kohen and Kohen Gadol, like priest and then the high priest. So that language is already here. Um, and so that those are the only people who are going to deal with this or see it. Now it's very public in terms of the smoke from the altar, so the people can see the smoke and they can smell the barbecue. That's how they know it's happening. But that's the only way they know it's happening. All of these rituals, right, are all going to be done inside the boundaries past which the Israelites are not allowed to go. Why, why what? Why, why is it so secretive? You tell me. So secret is one. It's just so holy, I guess. It's just so powerful. Secret is one word. If we take Torah seriously, the people were supposed to learn Torah, 
right? Moshe was supposed to read this to the people. So in ancient Near Eastern religions, other ancient Near Eastern religions, it was secret. What the priests did, only the priests knew. Only the people who could read those texts and only the priests could do that knew what was happening. This is a radical innovation in the ancient world that all of the people were supposed to know all of this. So this is a change from one hierarchy to spreading the power a little bit. A little bit. Because the people presumably can hold the priesthood accountable because they know if they looked at this week's Parsha and they look at next week's Parsha, why are you dressed in green? I know Parsha Titzaveh. And it says you're supposed to be dressed in crimson and red and blue. What's with the green? Right? So the people could presumably hold the priests accountable. That is the first time this, that has happened in the ancient world. As far as we know. Is with, is with early Israelite religion. So, so that's why I'm going to back off. I'm going to turn us from the word secretive to exclusive. Okay. Right? So the people are supposed to know what's happening because they've got, they've got the testament that tells them what's happening. But they can't see it. They can't be part of it past this divider. So now answer why. Well, is this to promote education? How? How does it promote education? You have to know the Torah to be a part of it, really. Mm-hmm. So hopefully people will want to be a part of it, right. and so they will learn. They will learn. Isn't there a sense like a nuclear reactor that the that that the altar is really the center of it, and that somehow concentrated is the power of God, of God there? It's not. It's like not looking at the mountain. Yeah, it's like it's like not looking into the sun. And there's an issue of danger, that it's a very dangerous place. Yes. And when, and we, when we talk about those places, right, what are we talking about? Kadosh. Right. We're talking about Kadosh, right? And, and how do we know this is translated? Don't give me the English. Separate. Yes. Separate. Or set apart. Set apart. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and we say that so often. Kadosh, right, is, so we say in English, holy. Mm-hmm. Like it, not not nearly. It's set apart. It's it's completely Mm -hmm. other. Mm -hmm. It's other, and it is supercharged. Mm -hmm. So it is God who gives the instruction, according to tradition. Mm -hmm. It is God who gives the instruction that only the Levites and the priests are able to deal with the superpower of Kadosh. And they do it on behalf of the people. They do it on behalf of the people. So. We tend to think of things of exclusive, meaning they get to do it and we don't. The Torah understands who was supposed to do the service of God originally. I'm going to test our knowledge now. (laughs) Who was supposed to do this originally? Not the priests and Levites. I'm going to say all of us. Well, some from among us. Moses, the firstborn. The first of every fruit belongs to me, says God. The first of every right animal belongs to me. It is sacralized. Your firstborn belong to me, to serve me. The firstborn were supposed to be the ones who served God. Where do we get that? Where, where was that? Earlier. Missed that. You missed that, yes. A few weeks ago. So it was earlier. In our text, when we're talking about bringing the first fruits, the 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 issue, the first issue of the womb belongs to God. Period. Peretz rechem that that which is the first to burst forth from the womb 
All of it belongs to God. Animals, people, trees, everything. So why didn't it, did it not apply here? Ah, we're going to get there. Well, I was just going to say that I guess Orthodox follow the tradition of Pidyon Haben. That's right. back from God. Right. So Pidyon Haben, firstborn son, still traditionally, you pass a... You know, coins. You, you put coins on a platter, right? So that, and that goes to tzedakah, and you redeem the firstborn son from service. So it's only sons, male. Correct. Of course. <laughs> of course. Um, only if you're only if you're is for any firstborn, right? It's a remnant of this idea that the firstborn are sacral. That they belong, right, to the divine, and we have to redeem them. What does it mean to belong to the divine in the sense of the firstborn child? They don't belong to you anymore. I mean, like sacrificing was that the idea? Or Originally, it might have been in the neighborhood. Torah. We some people think that is the point of the binding of Isaac story. Mm-hmm. That the binding of Isaac story, because otherwise it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? What God is going to ask mm-hmm. somebody to sacrifice their son, and he says, okay, and we're like, oh, yay, that was the right answer, right? So it makes sense if the story is a polemic against child sacrifice, mm-hmm. right? That, right. that, you, you, that the story is going to be, you think the story is going to end if you live in that neighborhood. You think the story is going to end with the slaughter of Isaac. Mm-hmm. But, but the... Angel comes and says, don't harm even a hair on his head. And that, that that's the power of the story. We, we focus on the beginning, that God would ask such a thing, and that Abraham would say, okay. But really, if you put it in its what some people are calling its proper context, you're not focusing on the beginning of the story, because that's just, duh, there's a flood. Well, of course there's a flood. There has to be a flood. You can't have it, the ancient world and it's just describing it without a flood, right? So, duh, he's asked to sacrifice his son, of course. The, the, the power of the story is in that is not what God wants. And instead, you are to offer a ram. You offer an animal. So it should be called um, a non-sacrifice of it, Isaac. Right, and, and so people talk about the sacrifice of Isaac, but of course it's not. The story is the akedat Yitzchak. It's the binding mm-hmm. of Isaac, right? Um, and in you know, uh, Muslim tradition, it is who? Who goes up with Abraham? Ishmael. So in this case, it was originally firstborn. Oh, thank you. Take. <laughs> I'm glad someone has a memory for me. Thank you, Laura. So the firstborn were kadosh. They were set aside. The firstborn were set aside. God says, I'm going to excuse you for your firstborn, and I'm going to take the tribe of Levi instead. Uh, you keep your firstborn. Think about the Israeli army, <laughs> right? There's parts of the Israeli army that want, don't want conscription anymore. They don't want you know, some Nebuchadnezzar Yeshiva Bukhar. Like they, they're like, keep them. You know what? Keep them. Well, we're going to have a paid, trained, professional <laughs> army. Keep your Yeshiva Bukhar at home. It doesn't help us at all. Right? So, um, so keep, keep your firstborn. I'm taking, God says, the tribe of Levi instead, in place of that you're firstborn. They will serve me. So, We tend to think of that as they they exclusively will be running this business. We tend to think of that as a privilege and we're left out. The way Torah understands it, the Levites are taking upon themselves the danger 
of coming into contact with Kadosh, with Kedusha, with holiness, with absolute purity, with absolute concentrated God. They bear the risk for the people Israel of encroachment on the sancta. So it's also a pretty... That's the gift they're giving, really. The Levites. Yes. They, and, and is there any other place that is unencroachable besides the Mishkan? The Whenever the mountain is supercharged, right. when God comes down on the mountain, God says, don't touch the mountain because now it is, now it's nuclear. Right. Right? Um, and, and the ark remains, as we see in a couple of other texts outside of the five books, it's Chronicles and Samuel. We see an incident where someone touches the ark while it's being transported and is zapped, right? Like, touches it and is vaporized. Be careful, Bert. (laughs) Mr. Incoming President. So, um, So, Lev means heart? Yes. And Levite, is that why... Oh, that's beautiful. That's so beautiful. However, (laughs) (laughs) Levi and Lave is, yeah, but that that was lovely. That was lovely. So above, above and Levi, a vet and Lave. So, but being a being a Levite is not it was not a great job. So, so I mean, you're dealing with that's my point. My point is the Levites. Yeah, it was exclusive, but it was exclusively on them to ensure everything ran like it was supposed to, so we didn't get vaporized. So, right, so right, so you can call that an honor, and they certainly understood that to be an honor. We still treat it as an honor, right? People who trace their lineage back to Kohain or Levi are very proud of that. But the work was grim. The work was chopping up a bull, a ram, like right, and like laying those pieces on the barbecue and and cleaning up. And cleaning up. They had to clean out the coals. They had to. They. they it was a lot of work, and it wasn't pretty. This is for the lay Levites. Yes. So it wasn't. They weren't shochet. Right. Well, they were the shochet. They became. They they became the shochet because you brought your. Where the shochets all came from? uh, Well, it's it's where the practice comes from. So that remained the practice of how you kill an animal to be able to eat it stayed with our tradition even after the temple was destroyed. From this, from this tradition, because they couldn't. if you don't have uh, genetic clarity, if you're a Levite or a Cohen, there is some evidence that there bless you that there is a genetic component that people who trace their lineage to Cohen are more similar genetically to one another than they are to the rest of the population. I, I haven't done enough research to know, but I've seen enough articles to believe that it's a thing. Um, Some people, I guess, are just told by their... They, they are always told because it's part of their name, right? So they, they understand. It, they have their Hebrew name, and at the end it says Hakohen. Okay. Right? It's on tombstones. You'll find it on tombstones. When you see this um, uh-huh. on a tombstone, right. that's Kohen. That's that person traces their lineage back to being a Kohen. Do they say Halevi also? Um, they say Halevi, mm-hmm. and the first the first Aliyah g- right. given is always given to a Kohen, traditionally, and the second to a Levi. 
and then the rest is Israel. The rest is the rest of us. So who makes our middle management and Kohanes uh, <laughs> are our elected officials and the Levites are um, uh, the bureaucrats. Correct. <laughs> Correct. That is exactly right. I was told that basically we're all, unless we know otherwise, we're the Levites. No. We're all Yisrael. We're all Yisrael. Yeah. Right. See, that's, I, I talked to the wrong people. Yes, you did. <laughs> you got alternative facts. Yes. You fake got news. fake news because, <laughs> because <laughs> right? So um, we are all Yisrael. Levite <laughs> is mid-management. And Kohen was, you know, the top dogs. There's but nothing under not, Yisrael. But that's the top dogs just religiously. 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 Just religiously. Ritual. And, Ritual. and later... This is the cause for the split between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Pharisees. What was the cause of that split? The rabbis were looking at the priests going, you, you all get to be the hoo-ha, hoo-ha, you know, closest to the divine. You, know, you, you deal with Kedusha, blah, blah, blah. And you lie, you steal, you cheat, you lay around all day, you, you, know, you eat and drink and do whatever you want. Like, how, how can that be what God wants? Shouldn't, shouldn't who's closest to God have something to do with how we behave and, and what our character is like? Like, why do you, just because you get born into this business, get to be the ones who are holy, right? And it was a very serious cause of tension. This is what the prophets are yelling and screaming mm-hmm. about. The early prophets are a response to the system. We, t- we put them all in one book because we canonize our critics because we're crazy, <laughs> right? We're Jews. So we canonize the critics who came to say, this is not how it's supposed to be. Y'all are messing up the priorities. Yeah, you might get your offerings right and the gold might be really shiny because you keep it really polished, but you have missed the point of the rest of this. What about, and then the prophets lift up verses of Torah, don't Mm -hmm. they? What about this? What about there shall be no poor among you? What about you shall not abuse the widow and the orphan? What about that, y'all priests? Mm -hmm. Look at the, the conflict between birthright and status in the society. Here we have birthright... I assume you have to be born to be a yes. Cohen family. Yes. Cohen family to be a Cohen. Uh, and birthright, we saw in earlier stories as well. Both the good and the bad side of it. What happens, right? Right. What happens it's when it's based on birth, birth, whether it's birth order or what tribe you're born into, right. or in Aaron's case, what family you're born into? To be a Cohen, you have to be a descendant of Aaron and Moses. So look how the Torah and is Miriam. trying to set things on a more even scale. Well, t- Torah doesn't. Torah is not so worried about even. It's later that that the in, the impulse, the instinct for it being more just or fair or equal comes, and the rabbis start to push against this system. The early prophets are some of those early. right early responses to this, and. Because of history, what happens in 70 AD? The CE? The second temple. The destruction of the second temple. When the second temple is destroyed, the argument is over and the rabbis win. That is why we are Jewish, not Israelite. We were Israelite until 70 CE. 
Once the temple's destroyed, the priesthood is gone. The Kohanim, the Levites, all of it, sacrifice, all of it's gone. The rabbis win. Thank God they had something going on already that could become rabbinic Judaism. That, that's, that's what we are. A whole nother religion was born in 70. Based on the same text. Based on the same text with the stuff that the rabbis had been arguing against the literal interpretation of a lot of this. And that becomes normative because the rabbis win the day. Were those early rabbis all Kohanim? No, they were not Kohanim. That was kind of... (laughs) Don't know. Don't know. Did some people jump ship? Don't know. It's interesting. I'm I'm just thinking because Rabbi Rubin is giving a class on Perkei Avot. All the rabbi names in there, none of them say Hakohen. I, I don't I would know that had they been, maybe it would have maybe. Been. I don't know if that was the tradition to put yeah. it in, you know, those kinds of texts. Um, but we know there were a lot of priests out of work. <laughs> right? There were so many priests and they had to wrote once once worship is centralized in Jerusalem, once that happens. Mm-hmm. It wasn't always. There used to be altars other places. Right, you offered wherever you were. Once once worship is centralized in Jerusalem, what are you going to do with all those priests? You don't need them. Living everywhere else. You don't so we believe they rotated through. Mm-hmm. You know, you went and did your service at the temple in Jerusalem, but then what are you going to do the rest of the time? Um, so it's possible some of them right become critics of the system. But I think um, also from a political standpoint, the rabbis had to establish their legitimacy. And that meant two things. Number one, saying the, the priests are not the legitimate people, and they established that by saying, we are directly connected to Moses and the line that the teaching was given, and they come up with the idea of oral Torah, that what they were doing was actually an extension well, and they're, of the Torah. And they're crafty about it. Yeah. They're political about it yeah. because they don't overtly say the priests are not right. Right, they never say that they, mm-hmm. even when the, after the destruction of the first temple and they're living in New York like they're living in Babylonia and they're having a great time and they're successful and whatever they're still sending their taxes back to the priests they're still supporting the temple they're still supporting the system that they have no benefit from right because they're not sacrificing their animals in the temple they're sending money if I need to, if I have to do a sin offering and it's a pigeon, I send enough money for a pigeon to Jerusalem. So they never, mm-hmm. they never go back and say they are not the legitimate whatevers. They just go around they it. They say we're the legitimate, and they ones. say we, right? And it's true that that Moses receives mm-hmm. Torah mm-hmm. from God. The seventy elders receive it from Moses. Then on and, on. on and down and down and down. And that is why today, when you have a rabbi ordained, except in the Reconstructionist mm-hmm. movement, when they are ordained, they right. We've talked about this with the offerings, like that they lay their hands on those. We've talked about it with offerings. I don't think we've talked about it this way. That they mm-hmm. lay their hands on them to give them smicha. So the ordination, right? They are laying on their hands in order to transmit the zappage <laughs> from Sinai from to Moses all the way down, except in Reconstructionism. We are not ordained in Reconstructionism. We graduate the rabbinical college, and we are given a diploma, and we are given the title Rav. 
So where did you get your zap? <laughs> according to, according to Reconstructionism, we all have equal zap. Right? We, we all share equally. So, sociologically, that's such an interesting development, too. Because there was no physical takeover. There was no bath. Well, the battle and the war was done by Rome. Yes, they did that for us. Rome did that. Rome Rome destroyed the priests and their whole religion. That obliterated in 70, obliterated. Ancient Israelite religion was dead. And we should have disappeared at that moment. Where are the Edomites? Where are the Jebusites that got the same treatment by Rome? You you destroy their holy places, you destroy their temples, you exile the people so that they can't revolt and take it back, right? We have a little Maccabee story about what happens when you don't disperse the people, right? So so you once you do that to a people in the ancient world, they're gone. The only reason we are still here is because the rabbis had already been working on an alternative system. They already had a foundation. Exactly right. So it's only from our own critics that we survived as a people. Audrey? In Sunday school, I recall learning Abraham was the first Jew. Now, where does that fit in, if at all? It's, but you said that it's mythically, mythically, it's accurate. But historically, it's inaccurate to use the word Jew until much later. Is that with the covenant, the first covenant when the breach um, with Abraham? Yeah, that it happened, right? That's where it started? The bris? Um, it doesn't start with bris. Bris? No, I'm saying that's when the bris and, and the covenant. 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 So Abraham is the first to to have a covenant with yud heh vav right? And walks through the pieces of the animal. That's first. Then, then he's told to to circumcise himself and his son um, at 90, whatever, years old. Oh, no, that's way, way before. 70 is the end of the story. Yeah. Abraham is Genesis. Abraham's the very, very, very beginning. That's why it can't come more or more years. Right. By a thousand years. Seventy AD is the beginning of a new story, right? That's that's a story where you know. Yes, Ruben. And yet, you um, the uh, my train of thought here. The Orthodox still regard the Kohanim, for example, as really, really uh, alive and, and have that place in society. Is that the legacy that they use for the rabbis? Is it, is it that same thing? Um, no, it's um, people who trace their ancestry to Kohen. In a, or in an Orthodox synagogue, there are still times where they do what's called Duchanan. Mm-hmm. And the anyone who traces their, their heritage to Kohen, they go out. Anyone who traces... Trees traces their lineage through Levi, go out, the Levim wash the feet and the hands of the Kohanim, the Kohanim come back in, they, they get up on the bima and they recite the priestly blessing over the people. So so that there's a remnant still, and like I said, the first Aliyah goes to a Kohen, second Aliyah goes to a Levi. So the, the, there are still remnants of this within the 
traditional Jewish world, not in any form of progressive Judaism. Don't don't the Orthodox the regard for a Kohen is very high. It's a real thing among the Well, aren't they waiting for the construction of the third temple? And so you have to keep Kohanim and Levi because there's right. going to be a third temple and somebody needs to come back and do the sacrifices the way it is in Torah. Rita? I was just going to say, uh, during that priestly blessing in Orthodox synagogues, you're supposed to look down, and I was taught, if you look up, like, you're going to be zapped. It's so mystical and so creepy in a way. (laughs) Yes, we were told to to not look at them. We were to look look down. We see how stubborn the Kohanim and the Yehudis are. But what accounts for the stubbornness and persistence of the Israel? Because we don't have a special place, but we do love our name. <laughs> right? So we we are stubborn. That's why we're still here. Right? Israel is just as stubborn in our own way, because here we are, right? Studying Torah, studying texts that 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 the application of fell out of use two thousand years ago. Right, and we're still reading. Well, we've read uh, one verse. verse. (laughs) I let it go because I wasn't going to dig too much into um, text. So yes, Pam, I know it's going on. Get to the real juice of this. Um, I I know, right? So that's that's. I try to stay with. We're we're learning no matter whether we're in text or in history, right? All right. So this is the truma. That you will, again, we get the word tikhu meitam, that you will take from them. Zahav, bechesef, unachoshet, verse 3. Zahav is what? Gold. Gold. Kesef is what? Silver. And nechoshet? Probably bronze, probably a alloy of copper and tin um, is what's meant by nechoshet. There is uh, no... No iron used in the building of the Mishkan, right? That is not one of the metals that are brought to be offered. Any guesses? Before the Iron Age. So it's late Bronze Age, early Iron Age. So possibly it's because there isn't a lot of iron or... Get it? Either there isn't a lot of iron or... I know, okay, it was bad. It's been a long week. I'm sorry. So um, <laughs> what's the other reason? There's there's no iron or what? It would be the opposite, which would be that it's just too abundant and it's not special. It, if And it's abundant in what form? Uh, what was it used for? Oh, weapons. Weapons. Mm. Not weapons. The... <laughs> The Iron Age. The Iron Age. Just say. No, you did not. Just say the Iron Age. Um, the the Iron Age is it, that the technology of iron changed warfare. That that is how we know, right? That's that's what marks the Iron Age is is war changes. The sword, uh, arrow. What do you call them? Arrowheads. Um, it's much harder and it's much more better, right? It's, <laughs> it is way better as a weapon, 
the iron. Yes. So possibly there's no iron used in the Mishkan because it's the weapon of war. Uh, this is why some people believe the altar was made out of unhewn stones, right? We are always told the altar is out of unhewn stones. It means stones that have not had iron used to cleave them. That you, that, and right, David is told you will not build the temple, God says to David, because yours has been a life of war. You've been a mercenary. It's your son who will build the temple. So it, it's... It's one possibility. Yes. Well, there is another. <laughs> there is another. Gold, uh, silver, and, and copper are noble metals, meaning they don't tarnish or gold doesn't at all, and silver <coughs> not so much, and copper less, but but uh, iron rusts. So in terms of permanence and okay. sort of thing, they would have noticed. And gold so never, <laughs> never, they would never have noticed. <laughs> Even back then, they would have That it keeps that its. That those are the metals that keep the precious metals that keep their yes. luster. Yes. Yeah. Now these are people who've just these are the slaves who've just come out of Egypt. Correct. And they have all this stuff. Correct. How do they have all this stuff? From the Egyptians. Oh, they were given from the Egyptians. From the Egyptians. They plunder the Egyptians, and God says, and they will be they will be favorable towards you. Giving you stuff as you leave. Where was the gold coming from? They hadn't gone to Africa. The Egyptians. Egyptians, okay. They, they plunder the Egyptians as they leave, is, is what Torah tells us. All right. Tchelet argaman utola'at shani. So we're getting the other things that are going to be given as truma, and those are things that are of the color. Tchelet argaman, right? Uh... We're, these colors of blue, purple, crimson, um, believed to be made from a marine snail whose ink is yellow wow. until it hits fabric and sunlight. If it once it's used to dye fabric and that hits sunlight, it is red by the eye. <laughs> <laughs> as oh, sorry, I cannot, I'm sorry. Um, it's it's red by the eye as violet, like on the violet, you know, still, spectrum. Still case. Yarn is dyed with that same process from the snail. It's done in Mexico. I just saw it done. There you go. Talk to the artists, uh, and they will tell you about these things. Um, do you do you remember tzitzit originally has what? Right, we're told it has to have a one of these tchelet strings in it. Does your tzitzit have a teal tchelet? No. No. Most don't. They can't find the can't find the animal anymore. One theory. They can't find it. But if they're doing it in Mexico, they are. What's another theory? It's too expensive. It's extremely expensive. And that's why it's used in the Mishkan. It's some of the most expensive fabric or yarn in the world because it's so rare. And to to get something dyed that color, you need so much of that <coughs> stuff that like it's it's exorbitantly expensive. So some people believe the rabbis nixed the petil tchelet because people couldn't afford it. And then it made a distinction between people wearing tzitzit that were kosher and people wearing tzitzit that weren't kosher who couldn't afford the petil tchelet. Um, I read an article once that said it's not that either. Um, it's uh, it's that it was the color of magic. 
And people were way too attached to that as a kind of amulet, not something that reminds us of the mitzvot, but instead it was too focused on magic. That is the other reason these colors are part of the Mishkan. You've got to take your magic and royal colors if you're going to build something for the divine, right? Well, duh. You're not going to make it out of the most common color that nobody cares about. You're, you're going to take the most powerful colors you know and the most expensive and the reason they're so powerful is because they're so rare, right? That's how that's somehow how anthropologically that happens um, and that's what you're going to make it out of, right? So it makes perfect sense that these are the things being used. Fine linen, right? Because that's some of the nicest material there was. Goat's hair, because yeah, you, you, need, you need building materials, right? It's going to be a tent. So you have to use what what you make tents out of, and you make tents out of goat. It's amazing how detailed, and it goes on and on. So yeah. this is important. We'll this is this is yeah. we're going to be in this for a while. We're going to be in these details for a while. Um, and so that's one of the reasons they believe this might actually be some kind of historical memory because it is so detailed. Yeah. And just wait, when you get to sockets and <laughs> it's going to be from here to here and it's got to be this long. I mean, it, it's unbelievably detailed. Um, all right, so we've got tanned ramskins, dolphin skins. It's not dolphin, obviously. Um, tachash, we're not sure what tachash means. Um, it could be a marine uh, mammal, possibly, but doubtful. Um, tachash somewhere else is uh, what's referred to as the color of a stone. When leather is dyed that color, it's called tachash. So like a yellow. So it's possibly this this tanned... Uh, leather. We have oil for lighting, which is pure olive oil, right? As as distinct from what you'd use to cook. Like this is purified olive oil. Spices for the anointing oil and for the aromatic incense. These are the things that are going to be used. You're going to add spices to oil <coughs> to desecularize the mishkan and all that's in it. You have to desecularize it with this mixture. Right. All right. And then stones that are going to be precious stones that are going to be used in the breastpiece. And then we get to this very famous verse. Vasuli mikdash, and they will make for me a mikdash. Right? You see the you see the kufdalid shin in there? They will make me a holy place. They will make me a set apart place. Vishachanti bitocham, and I will dwell in them. <laughs> ah, Reuben, what does it say? So it's right. So the May is an English edition. It's not there in the Hebrew. They will make me a mikdash, and I shall dwell among them. So why would they translate it with a May? Because it means, it, the may there means that I might. It, it's so what, that I, so that I yeah. might oh, so dwell, that. so that I might dwell among them. 
um, so that's what that may means. That formal, formal right. That the, making the mikdash is what's going to allow me to dwell among them. That's what the may is doing there. It doesn't mean or not. Right. It doesn't mean may not. not. That I might, so but then again, I might able. not. So that I'm able to dwell yeah. among them, right? That is an English way to it. But it, the Hebrew is much more, specific, as always, specific and precise and, and terse. Let them build me a sanctuary. They will build me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. So the rabbis, who are always seeking to metaphorize, if that's a word, this stuff, right? We've heard their story. So they 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 are not interested in this being so literal because the temple's gone. This is a beautiful opportunity for the rabbis because they take out the word among. Take out the word among, and what have you got? They will make me a mikdash, and I will dwell in them. And this, for the rabbis, becomes the focus of all of it, that we are to build a mikdash, and in that way, God dwells in us. And they go further, that they then have the human being be the mikdash, that every human being is a mikdash me'at, is a small mikdash, And that's what God wanted all along. That what God wanted all along was that we should make of ourselves a mikdash. We should make ourselves and our lives holy. And when we do that, God dwells in the mikdash. That is each one of us. Is it later we get just what? Yes, they yes, absolutely they do. Even as they long for the third temple, they yes, this is absolutely throughout all parts of Judaism. Ve'asuli mikdash b'shachanti b'tocham becomes a way of talking about building lives of holiness that God might dwell within us. Isn't it a little while that we get kedushin to Yuki Kadosh? Yes. But it's yeah, Leviticus further. Yes, yes. No, we're just saying wherever we go, we take God. That what? Wherever we go, we take God. I, yeah, absolutely. If, if yeah, if or you could say wherever right. we go, God is. Well, and then for all of the care and specificity and specialness of what's put into the mikdash is the prayer that we with ourselves and this is uh, my son Aaron's Torah portion. So you know it's thirteen and you're thinking so much about all the negative self talk and all the external, you know, things that, that go on not only at thirteen but for all of us. And to try to be so mindful about what it is you build in yourself and to treat yourself kindly and put special things in there. So, and and there's there's a whole a whole genre of Jewish spiritual literature related to this, related to the idea that we're each a mishkan. There's be- there's really beautiful stuff written about how each of us is, is a mishkan, including that uh, we once made offerings on the on the altar, and now the altar is the heart. The fire that burns in the heart is the altar, and we are to offer all the. Every, all the worry, all the chatter, all the whatever, rather than criticize ourselves for worrying and getting all caught up in whatever, we're to offer that on, right, in prayer on the altar of the heart. Right? So there's beautiful 
there's really beautiful stuff about spiritual practice around this stuff. In in what way? That it's the spark that's in everybody. That that is a definition of of God too. That is not unique to Reconstructionism. No. No. I mean, that no. along with the question I asked a minute ago, do the Orthodox mm-hmm. also think of it? It's Judaism. But is that how that's you Judaism. find God as well in Orthodoxy? As the spark that's within each of us, not anything outside of us? No. Reconstructionism does not define God as the spark within each one of us, not beyond us. That is not a definition of reconstruction. They can be a reconstructionist mm-hmm. definition. It's a corollary. It's a corollary, but it's but the the move in reconstructionism is away from a supernatural God to a transnatural God. But I believe lots of people in Reformed Judaism would agree with that as it's their theology. You know, like it's it might at one point have been. Exclusively Reconstructionist, but, no. but I don't think so anymore. And I would say probably the liberal wing of conservative as well might think the same yeah. way. The there's a before we get to the sheet I gave you, there's another one I wanted to read you by um, Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan, who says the Mishkan, literally the dwelling place of God in the text of the Torah is a magnificently crafted pavilion tent standing at the center of the Israelite camp. But where really is the Mishkan? Classical rabbinic midrash offers three answers. One, in the human being. Sure, people donated gold, silver, copper, blue threads, purple wool, and red threads, but these are also metaphors. People donated their golden souls, their silver bodies, their copper voices, their blue veins, their purple flesh, and their red blood. Only when people committed themselves to the common good could God find a dwelling place among the people. Number two, in the heavens. Sure, the Mishkan is made of gold, silver, copper, blue threads, purple wool, and red thread, but these are also metaphors. The Mishkan reflects the golden sun, the silver moon, the copper sunset, the blue sky, the purple clouds, the red rainbow, Only when things awesome and beautiful are reflected in behavior can God find a dwelling place among the people. Number three, in the entire universe. Yes, the Mishkan was made with curtains, dividers, a wash basin, and a menorah. These are also metaphors. The world is also covered with the curtain of heaven, divided into earth and sky, filled with basins of water and lit with a golden sun. The Mishkan's magnificence simply reminds us God dwells everywhere around us. The Midrashic message, supporting community, yearning for spiritual connection, caring for the natural world, all of these brings God's presence into the heart. Rabbi Laura Duhan Kaplan. I thought it was no lovely. To no, I mean, is it... <laughs> No, no idea. I didn't check her yichas. I, I don't know. Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com. Uh, we're going to look at our at the handout I gave you. Go to uh, the third text down, our Torah verse. Our Torah verse is Vasuli mikdash v'shachanti b'tocham. Let them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. The last word in this verse, betocham, translated as among them, can also mean within them. Many commentators pick up on this and focus on what it means for God to dwell within the people. 
And Aviva Zornberg is one of the ones who says, right, not the, God is not going to dwell among the people as a whole, but rather within each person. The Mishkan is meant to represent the fact that holiness is able to dwell within and among each and every individual. So the the whole point of Mishkan, right, is for us to do that communally. We need a Mikdash. We need, like the Israelites, we need Ki. We need this building, and it should be beautiful, and we should come here, and we should be here together. And the point is, so that the divine is magnified, concentrated differently within each one of us, right? And then in our lives, and in our homes, and what happens when we leave this place. It isn't for us to only experience that here. It's that God then dwells differently, right, in in each one of us. Um, go to the top text, Rabbi Tarfon. Rabbi Tarfon said, how great is work, right? We talk about Shabbos, 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 Shabbos all the time. Shabbos, Shabbos, Shabbos. There's a lot of literature in the Talmud that talks about work. That, that it's not all about Shabbos. Shabbos is so that you can go back to work refreshed and ready to do good work. Rabbi Tarfon said, how great is work? For even God, who is everywhere, will not bring the divine presence to rest on the Jewish people until they have done work. As the Torah says, they must make for me a, a tabernacle that I may, then I will dwell among them. Right? This is Avot from Avot to Rabbi Natan. So this, the, the idea is like, we have to do our work. And I believe this is both literally, we have to work. It, like, that God doesn't just, poof, make a mishkan. God has the people make the mishkan. You have to do the work. So I think that's absolutely important. We have to contribute. We have to, to dig in. And I believe it's also a metaphor that we have to do the work. Ain't no mikdash here or anywhere else until we've done the work. We have to do our spiritual work. We have to do our spiritual work. We've got to do our work in therapy. We have to do right. We have to do the work of of making of ourselves and our lives a mishkan, and it's work. And we often get frustrated and forget that. How come I'm not sitting in meditation and feeling it, right? Because it's work. It's not easy to sit in meditation, right? Monkey mind makes it really frustrating. A lot of the time, that's the point. The point is not to get all gushy and have union, you know, mystico, whatever it is, like mystical union, right? Yes, if that happens, okay, terrific. But that's not the point. That's not the point. The point of meditation is the work of bringing the mind back, bringing the mind back, bringing the mind back, and bringing it back, and bringing it back again. That is what builds of ourselves Holiness is because we then control the ability. We have the ability to control where we go, how fast we get triggered, what we do when we get triggered. Right? That's a lot of work. Okay. Beautiful. Go down to the paragraph starting the Hebrew term nadiv. Nadiv lev. We saw that they have to be willing to give. Right? That it's they're going to get a tax. Don't worry. There's going to be a tax, and everybody has to pay half a shekel. They're going to pay dues. Don't worry about it. Like they, to build KI, to keep it running, you got to pay dues. It's a Jew tax, and that's going to be equal on everybody. Everybody's got to pay that. This, the gold, silver, and all that other expensive gorgeousness, that has to be an offering 
voluntary from the heart. So what y'all bring above and beyond your dues in all kinds of ways is that has to come from you. The Hebrew term nadiv, this word suggests not so much the office or status of a noble, but rather the characteristic of nobility. It is linked to the term for generosity, nidava, a free will offering, or nadiv lev, one whose heart moves them to contribute. Here the idea of nobility is bound up with what noble people do. They're generous. It is not about station, but about behavior and character. Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. After revelation, God creates the possibility for every Israelite to be generous through the joint project of building the Mishkan. Everyone can give. And in giving, everyone can be a person who gives, a nadiv, a noble. So this, this idea is... You know, we, we think of ourselves as slaves. We think of ourselves as powerless. We think of ourselves as impoverished. We think about ourselves as weak. We think about ourselves as all those things. So God gives us the project of, of what, of being noble. Who, who, nobility gets to, to give things, yeah. right? Hmm? It's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for them to experience the, I, I don't know that I would use nobility, but like dignity. The dignity of contributing gives them a sense that they have a stake in this. They've built this. They have contributed to this, right? That we feel differently about things that we feel we have buy-in or ownership. Only free people can do that. Huh? Only free people, Only free people can do that. Yeah. But they got that all that stuff from the Egyptians. It's not as if they worked and earned it and created it. So, yeah, they're giving something that they had, but they barely have it. So, so, the, so that's, so if we look at mythic history, yes, but what do I always tell you? What do we have to look at next after mythic history? Hist, real history. Lived history. This is written by people who were not slaves in Egypt. That's what I love about it. They, they were not slaves in Egypt. They wrote this in Canaan. Right, you know, so they're choosing to to write and and create about the importance of contributing because it gives one dignity to participate, and everybody needed to participate, and it was an opportunity for people to feel like they were in, right? So, so I get what you're saying, but of course it was back pay, right? <laughs> what the plunder was back pay, um, but it's but this is written by people who who didn't take stuff from the Egyptians. So, all right. Um, oh, my. Turn over your paper. But what it really applies to is that one can be noble and give with dignity doesn't say because they gave umpty-ump amounts. Correct. They might have given a little piece of lapis lazuli. Their ability and that made them... Noble as well. Absolutely. That is an interesting conversation. Um, it's one that Rabbi Rubin handles deftly and beautifully. Right? The conversation with him helped change your mind about it? Right. Um, he, speaks, he speaks really powerfully about it's important to have the names of the people who have 
who have created to, at a certain level the possibility of this place. Um, and, and that was a very, very, very ancient tradition. Mm-hmm. Very ancient. Was to put one's name. Even though Maimonides didn't like it at all. <laughs> right. Even though Rambam was not happy about it. Um, that's actually, that's one of the interpretations, one interpretation um, of why the blood was placed on the lintel of the doorpost when they left Egypt, because the lintel would have been made out of stone. Um, the rest of the house would have been mud brick, but the lintel was often stone because it would survive. And what you did was you carved your f- name into the stone because it wasn't going to go anywhere, right? So it was all about the permanence of the name and that that putting the blood on the lintel was covering the name, right? That God is saying, it's not about you and your permanence. You're leaving this place, and it's about you are now, your dignity and whatever comes through, attachment to me, right? And and this community. And so the blood on the lintel is to cover the the names. It's, it was an article I read that I was like, that is very cool. You make them show up more. <laughs> Bert, really? It's a whole lot of <laughs> All right. Uh, let's look at Rachel Berenblatt, also known as the Velveteen Rabbi. Um, this is her poetry. These are the gifts, leather and linen, silver and gold. Each who was moved returned these riches to the place. Every yearning heart following the blueprint. These are the gifts. Parchment scraped fine and iron gall ink commentaries in the margins, words intertwined so that the tabernacle becomes one whole. These are the gifts that make the sanctuary. The presence dwells in us. She started writing as a rabbinical student, and that's how she got the name the Velveteen Rabbi. She said, when will I be able to run and play with the real rabbis? Um, and now she is a rabbi, so she is, now it says running and playing with the real rabbis. Um, and so she's a, she has a wonderful blog. She writes beautiful commentaries on Torah and, and really nice poetry. You should look her up. Um, I often use, I don't, I don't know what to do on Passover. I never know what to do, but um, sometimes I've used her Haggadah. She has a Haggadah. Um, that is free, and it's a PDF. So definitely, if you're into doing Haggadot, you know, for yourself, it's a wonderful, wonderful resource. Um, is it good for kids? Yeah. It depends what age, but it is not written for kids. But it is more accessible than many Haggadot I have experienced. Um, this is the poetry of. Ruth Brim, of blessed memory. How to build the tabernacle, Truma. What did they build first after they left Egypt? They built the sanctuary. God commanded them to begin the sanctuary with the ark so that God could dwell among them. According to the word of God, our ancestors built the ark, and because their hearts were willing, they built themselves into the people who could carry the ark in their midst. We pray to begin what we build in the presence of God. We pray to begin each day and each year with the word of God. We pray to begin each task and each hour according to the will of God so that, like our ancestors, we may build and become what is good. Our God and God of our past and future, in you alone is goodness and holiness. Be with us 
in the thousand beginnings of our lives. May we each find a way this Shabbat to create space, sacred space at the center, uh, that we might experience the divine dwelling in each of us and that we might therefore contribute differently to what the world looks like this coming week. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.